0: Forever, Dog. Hey, I am Gabe Gonzalez and you're listening to the Queerty Podcast. Welcome back. This is a weekly show from Queerty and Forever Dog where I will cover news, politics, and pop culture impacting the LGBTQ community and invite a guest to discuss, dish, and just generally keep it cute. As always, the world is a shit show, but we've got a mix of stories today to leave you feeling, if not hopeful, at least up to date. We'll be talking about the most hypocritical claim of homophobia to light up my Twitter timeline, the documentary that proves we all owe Britney Spears an apology, and a retraction from Fox News that surprisingly doesn't have any anything to do with an election. Plus, we'll be talking to writer, speaker, activist, and all-around boss Raquel Willis about vague emojis, substantive representation, and her home state of Georgia. But first, let's go over a few headlines from this week in a segment we're calling Catch Her Up! All right, our first headline, Republicans are angry over a homophobic nickname. I find it just a touch ironic that Republicans suddenly care about homophobia, but in a classic example of the worst person you know stumbled onto a good point, the conversation at hand is regarding a certain nickname for Lindsey Graham, and it does bring up valid issues regarding homophobia. So long story short, White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey referred to Lindsey Graham as Lady G in a tweet from August of last year, referencing a nickname a gay sex worker used in a now-deleted post alleging the South Carolina senator was gay. Conservatives, including Richard Grinnell, an out-gay member of the Trump administration, called this out as homophobic. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but they are technically correct. The idea that an effeminate nickname implying somebody is gay is an insult relies on the very notion that being gay, or even gender nonconforming, or even femme, is inherently bad, or something to be embarrassed about. It's especially weird when it's coming from cis straight people. Hearing straight folks use that nickname is just leaves me a little unnerved. The thing is, it's also very tough for me to take this accusation in good faith, considering where it's coming from. Folks who supported an administration that tried to deny rights to the children of queer parents, passed transphobic housing and healthcare policies, and tried to make it legal for a workplace to fire you if you are queer or trans. Funny how none of those were issues the last few years, but suddenly this nickname is. So a little food for thought there. That's happening, whether we like it or not. Our second headline of the week, the Free Britney campaign is reignited after the premiere of Framing Britney Spears, a new documentary from Samantha Stark. It's exploring the sexism, abuse, and public mockery Britney Spears endured from a young age as a pop star. It also explores her father's role as her conservator, a sort of guardian appointed by a judge to manage an individual's life and finances due to physical or mental disability. It's a system that many say is often unjust and is being abused by Jamie Spears to exert control over his daughter. In an exclusive interview, Interview with queerity director Samantha Stark recounts how the documentary sheds light on the possible mental health struggles Britney herself faces particularly through her interaction with a young gay fan going through a difficult time in his life. He wrote Britney this letter, says Stark, that he was struggling. He had attempted suicide. He expressed his love for her in this message that as a kid, he had a lunchbox with her on it and none of the kids would eat with him. So he would pretend to eat with Britney. He wrote that her message made him want to live. Britney read it and started crying, then wrote him a letter back and proceeded to write him every year. And she gave him tickets to come back. He said that he came back and she said, if no one else ever says they're proud of you... Know that I'm proud of you. So I'm really thankful to Stark for the work she's put into this documentary and and sharing that story with Queerty. And in conclusion, besides making me cry, this documentary made me realize that Brittany is a saint and both Jamie Spears and Justin Timberlake need to be tried before the Hague. We will talk about Justin a little later, but the documentary really lays bare Let's say his track record of being complicit in sexualizing women and then not bothering to lift a finger when those same women are being harassed. And we're going to dive into that. We've got one last story, our weirdest headline of the week, although perhaps not unexpected, how Fox News ended up censoring gay storylines in a popular video game. So basically what happened is Jonathan Cooper, who is the lead game designer of the popular video game Mass Effect 2, which was released in 2010, very recently tweeted about drama uh, that happened at that game's inception, uh, basically how the studio behind the game BioWare deleted several same-sex romantic storylines in the game after outcry from none other than Fox News. Of course it's coming from that network. Designers actually modeled one romantic scene between two men in the game on a scene from Brokeback Mountain, maybe hoping that a queer reference that won an Oscar and didn't take terrify straight people, would let the move slide. But unfortunately, homophobic bias prevailed. Some of the Fox hosts who railed against the game later retracted their statements, admitting they had made a big deal about something they hadn't seen or played. Surprise! But the damage was done, and the game was even banned in Singapore. This isn't the first time a Fox News host has had to apologize for something they've blown out of proportion with no evidence, nor was it the last. Anybody remember November 2020? I ring a bell? Anyone? So there are our headlines of the week. We've got you all caught up and you can check out all those stories on queerty.com. Now it is time to dish and hang out a little bit with our guest, who I am so excited to have on the queerity podcast. Our next guest is a writer, a speaker, an activist. She's worked as a national organizer for the Transgender Law Center, the executive editor at Up Magazine, and most recently has been working at the Miss Foundation, a nonprofit focused on building women's collective power for social, economic, and reproductive justice. She's also been honored by publications like Essence, The Root, Forbes, and she won a GLAAD Media Award in 2020. Please welcome to the show a role model, a beacon of hope, a fearless leader for queer and trans communities, Raquel Willis. Hey, how you doing?
1: Hi, Gabe. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm um, a few weeks out of a COVID diagnosis, but thankful to be healthy and back on the show and thankful to have you on and hanging out with us today.
1: Yes, and thank you for sharing all of your brilliance, even in, I'm sure, what has been a difficult
0: time. I'm making a recovery. Thankful for it. I'm not back to where I was before, but, you know, I'm I'm using the diaphragm. I'm projecting. I'm feeling like my old self.
1: Darling, none of us will be back to where we were before. <laughs> it's just a fact.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. That is very, very real. It's This has been a, a weird, oh God, year and a half at this point, I guess. Well, about a year maybe. It feels longer.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'm in that weird time. You know, I've watched a lot of the Marvel movies finally, like all <laughs> the way through. And I feel like I'm in that weird part in between like Infinity War and Endgame where like, it's like, the, that's yeah. what I'm
0: feeling. <laughs> we are in the post-Snap world right now we're just like in stasis (laughs) until someone helps us get our shit together truly (laughs) all right so you've been watching marvel that's interesting have you are you all caught up in the wandavision hubbub that's happening right now there's a lot of buzz around that show
1: i am for whatever reason i was so resistant to getting into the superhero world and like the marvel cinematic universe for so long because i was like well if i ever do it i want to like Read a bunch of comics. I know there's no way to read all of them because there's just so many and so many alternate universes. The multiverse has always been so interesting to me, and like time travel, all that stuff. Like (laughs) that—that's my favorite science fiction like trope. But I was like, you know what? We've got time. Let me just, you know, block down like a movie a day and then just make it through. So I finally did. I finally gave Iron Man a chance. (laughs) I got past (laughs) his ego and. I loved it. I kind of watched most of it in order, too.
0: Yeah, I was a I was a very young X-Men, the animated series fan growing up. So I think the lack of X-Men in the Marvel movies for a really long time kind of put me off. My in for this was Spider-Man and Black Panther were like the two superheroes where I was like, OK, like these are ones I recognize and I really dig. Let's go in like Captain America, Hulk, Iron Man weren't really doing it for me growing up. So that was like <laughs> those are the ones that brought me in. And I was like, OK, fine, I'll watch Robert Downey Jr., like put on. On this thing and fly around for a little bit. But
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything that Captain America is about is so weird to me. Like, <laughs> I want to like him, but like, It just screams white supremacy and imperialism to me, and I just can't fully get into it.
0: It's also so weird that a character's genesis is, like, rooted in anti-fascism, but then also feels, like, eerily nationalistic. It's, like, a little too... It's, like, that kind of patriotism where you're like, what? Oh, God, okay. It's a little scary. (laughs) It's a little scary sometimes.
1: It is. I think they tried to make up for it by him, like, handing the mantle over to... Homeboy, I I don't even know his like what is he the Falcon? I think that's his Yes, name. yeah, he has yeah. a show coming out soon too. So, so I think I became a comic book nerd through the pandemic. Like that's what, or at least the movies.
0: I love that. All right, so you've turned into a nerd during the pandemic. That's exciting. That's great to hear. I've always been one. Welcome to the fold. Yeah. <laughs> so besides Marvel movies, is there anything else kind of helping you get through it lately? Anything that's been bringing you a lot of joy or making you feel inspired in these times?
1: I don't know. I I mean, I've been writing a lot because I'm working on a book that's really a memoir of my experiences in social justice work over the last like few years. That has really pushed me to do a lot of reflecting, processing, cringing at my (laughs) few years younger self. So that's been interesting. I've been... (laughs) Oh, Lord. So I've also been playing Switch. I got a Nintendo Switch. I'm not a gamer. I will never like say that I'm really a gamer because I'm not. But I've been playing a little bit. Um, So that's been fun. Yeah. And and trying to read when I can. I, I've been doing a lot of audiobook because it just feels easier than like reading actual like physical books. I'm absorbing the information and the stories differently. Audiobooks have been everything. I had read Saeed. Jones book, but then I finally like listened to it again on audiobook. So that felt really great to just hear his voice.
0: Yes, I've been
1: yeah. listening to Cicely Tyson's uh, memoir on audiobook, <sighs> which is great too. I guess I've been doing a little
0: productive enrichment during my quarantine. Saeed Jones and Cicely Tyson are a great <laughs> pair. That is fully an enriching. Yeah, that's a great palette of, of audiobooks to be listening to right now. I love that. <laughs> so you mentioned you are you're working on a memoir little bit about your social justice work. I wanted to ask about that, specifically an event from last year. You were speaker and an organizer at the March for Black Trans Lives. And a lot of people were actually surprised at the turnout and the impact that event had, not just within the Black trans community in New York, but sort of impacting the national conversation surrounding Black trans communities and people. So how did you feel that day? And were you as surprised as sort of outsiders who might not be as engaged with activism and organizing?
1: Yeah, you know, what was so interesting about the Brooklyn Liberation March, colloquially known as the March for Black Trans Lives, was that it really, from me personally, felt like the natural conclusion to like an arc. Even just a few years ago, we always had to consider ourselves within these other movements. And we couldn't really be specific about the Black trans experience. We had to be trans within the trans community. You know, we had to be queer within, you know, the LGBTQ community or Black within the Black community. And it now feels like we're in a time when we can really own and claim our own banner, right? And, and that we're still tied to these other movements, but that we are also our own specific thing like we got our own thing going on over here. So that is really what I took away in general from Brooklyn Liberation. But that day, it felt monumental. Like it felt like something was shifting. There was a new kind of understanding of our place in the world. It was beautiful to look out into that crowd. It was multiracial. It was gender diverse and gender expansive. You know, there were white people showing up. There were cis people of all different races and ethnicities showing up. And that is just not a common experience for trans people, much less Black trans people. I remember just a few years ago when it was a feat just to get 50 folks out to acknowledge what Black trans folks were going through. But one thing I I like to make clear is that that day is just one day. And that was just one March... In a lineage of so many different marches. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about 2013, what it was like for me all the way in Georgia to read articles and see photos from some of the rallies around the death of Elon Nettles here in New York, a Black trans woman who was murdered by a, a man on the street. And that was in 2013. Even as I was speaking and talking about Black trans power, which reverberated for a, a lot of reasons. I think to a lot of people is it really is also in the lineage of something like Sylvia Rivera shouting about gay power at a 1973 rally for Christopher Street Liberation Day. That is what I hope people will start to understand is that we have always been here. Trans people of color have always been here. And nowadays we just have more tools, more language, a little bit more access to stake our claim. So Gabe, I didn't know you were 30 because I'm literally turning 30 in a few months. It's so funny. There are so many like, queer creatives and media folks who are all hovering around 30 right about now. <laughs> Something is so happening.
0: True. Yeah, I love that we're just sliding into our 30s and being glamorous and amazing. Your 20s are a mess. No one likes their 20s.
1: You know, it's so funny I, because I'm having to relive a lot of it as I write this book. Yesterday, one of the lessons in my talk with my therapist, which is so funny because I'm I'm pretty open about therapy, but I still feel like there's a little bit of like stigma around saying that you have a therapist, especially with my, like, Southern family. (laughs) I know they're always like, why? Because none of them have been to therapy and... You know, my family is pretty solid. I will say that, but like everybody should go to therapy. But our lesson from therapy yesterday was really about extending grace to my former self because I'm not, I don't know that I'm quite there yet. Like there's so much I cringe about and I'm like, girl, what was going on?
0: It's a sign that you are, you're growing. But I love that. Extending grace to your younger self, your past self. That's crucial. So Raquel, I've got another kind of burning political question I wanted to ask you about, which is also kind of rooted in your social justice work. A while back in November. November of last year, you brought up the idea of substantive representation in politics in a tweet, sort of moving beyond visibility and really considering the impact women, people of color and or queer people want to have on politics by looking at their policies. Right. And you also mentioned that Republicans can weaponize identity politics to perpetuate destructive beliefs, right? We've seen them do this with Latinx candidates like Marco Rubio, who would probably cringe at being called Latinx, honestly. (laughs) Or women candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's a woman in office, but like, what are her policies? So I would like to ask you, why, why do you think it's so hard to have these conversations that go deeper than just visibility?
1: I think for communities on the margins, visibility is a useful tool. You know, if you felt discarded, neglected, erased in society, for so long, it is some kind of progress to then see someone who looks, lives, loves like you in a position of power. But it doesn't complicate the discussion around what power is and how it moves and is, is wielded in our society. Power still, if, if we go based off of how it has been consistently used throughout U.S. history, is rooted in a capitulation to white supremacy to the patriarchy, to xenophobia transphobia homophobia all of these different things and so we really have to complicate that so no you know it's not enough anymore for me to see a black person in a position of power i mean part of it is because we've seen that former (laughs) president barack obama but we also know he had one of the most devastating footprints in terms of imperialism on the rest of the world you know if you think about the off quoted Numbers of deportations or the drone strikes during the Obama administration. How can you say that everyone's issues, even Black people's issues, were solved by simply having someone who looked like us in office? And I think that that has come up numerous times. We see it every time a woman is elected to office. There's this assumption that she is the embodiment of kind of a perfect feminist ideal, whatever that means. You know, if you look at the track record of someone like Vice President Kamala Harris, you could argue that she hasn't necessarily showed up continuously in the best interests of even Black women, right? Or women who have been caught up in the criminal, quote, justice, unquote, system. Going closer to home for for our audience here, thinking about even a Pete Buttigieg, right? He, I, I believe, is like the highest ranking openly gay official ever. I think those things are great. But again, if we're looking at track record, how has Pete Buttigieg shown up for? the most disenfranchised and marginalized in our society. I I think we just have to complicate it. And it's not to poo-poo anybody's excitement around seeing people from the margins achieve great things that we once thought were impossible. But it is about being realistic that we have to demand more in terms of values from anybody. And the last thing I will say and get off of my soapbox a little bit Every single one of us from whoever you would like to consider to be the most marginalized, although I I don't subscribe to this idea that the stratification is that easy in terms of oppression in any part of the world, but... We all have the capacity to both be oppressed and be an oppressor. And we have to gain clarity about what privileges we may or may not have so that we can figure out ways to not wield them to the detriment of other folks. And that is a duty that we all have. Even me, as a Black trans woman who is routinely discusses the most marginalized in our country, at least in the United States or in the world, I can also be oppressive. My own particular basis that I have to continue to dig deeper and look closer at. Colorism, fat phobia, ableism, many other forms of xenophobia, depending on the context, because it also shifts. I have that duty. Everyone has that duty to do some deeper work around
0: how we move through the world. It is our responsibility to dig deeper and being critical or thinking critically about representation doesn't mean that we're trying to knock it down, right? We can be excited, but we do also have to be pragmatic and realistic and compassionate. Like, I think back to Jenny Set Gutierrez, another organizer, Mm -hmm. who was at a Pride event in the White House with a black president in a room full of mostly cis gay folks who are shushing her. You're looking at two historically oppressed communities being represented in the White House, shushing a trans woman who is trying to seek justice for trans immigrants being brutalized and dehumanized by our immigration system. That's a moment where I think now, in hindsight, we can look back and say, that was wrong. We should not have shushed Jenny C. Gutierrez in that moment. I just i am glad that we are maybe at a point where that's sort of entering the mainstream discussion about representation a bit more, right? Really thinking critically about the work that we can do to make the world around us more equitable and how even oppressed communities or historically marginalized communities can also engage in forms of oppression. Definitely our responsibility, absolutely our duty. Thank you for that. We're gonna take a very short break right now. And when we come back, I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about pop culture happenings growing up in Georgia and about an emoji that has confused me that I saw you use once. And I wanna see if you can help me figure it out, okay? Okay. (laughs) Um, So we're gonna take a little break and we will be right back. (laughs) And we are back with the Queerty Podcast and today's guest, Raquel Willis. Raquel, I want to ask you a question about emojis because I realize I've been (laughs) using a few incorrectly and I saw you use one in a very cryptic way, but I feel like you had a clear intention. I was like, okay, I want to know what this means, right? Do you know that emoji was like the squiggly smile and the kind of like whoop whoop face, those eyes? I knew it was one of two. I knew it was
1: either <laughs> that one or it's the upside down smiley face. The upside down smile.
0: <laughs> I think we all know what the upside down smiley means after this year, but. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but so I, I thought the like smile was a goofy, like, oh God, okay, here we go. But some people are telling me it's like kind of tipsy, like sort of infatuated emoji which makes the way i've been using it very strange looking back <laughs> at the context and a few days ago you used the little groop, 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 dude sorry that's the only sound effect i could use to describe it yeah. and it was just that emoji and so i was like okay raquel's got a clear intention a clear message here assuming you are comfortable sharing what did what did that little <laughs> yellow person mean to you in that moment <laughs> I remember using that because that was
1: all I tweeted, and I used that during Super Bowl halftime show when the mm. weekend was performing. That explains a lot, okay. <laughs> and I knew most people wouldn't get it, but it would find the right people because I just was not impressed. But I'm, <laughs> I'm not really impressed with the weekend in general. That's my hot take. I, you know, I know a lot of people love the weekend, and I will say after reading somebody's um, summation of like his ascent mm-hmm. and why it's so interesting is that he really kind of came about during that like early Tumblr
0: era. Oh yeah, uh huh.
1: And I I do remember that. I remember seeing him on Tumblr, and I gave his music a chance, and I, it wasn't for me. <laughs> interestingly enough it was just like so dark and sad and I don't mind that like I love a moody moment um Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for me to connect to like cis straight men being moody because I'm like well what you got to be moody about (laughs) but yeah so I use that emoji really just to say "Mm, I'm not really impressed Or like what Michael B. Jordan said in uh, Black Panther. Is this your king? (laughs) No, like that was really where I was coming from. It was a little hateful, but it was like coded. So it felt like, okay.
0: I'm glad to hear you say that because I've also been using it the same way. Kind of like a, really? Okay. All right. Like we're doing it. (laughs) So, Raquel, I do, I want to ask you about something else that's hopefully fun for you to talk about. You mentioned it earlier, your home state of Georgia. So it's getting a lot of attention lately. It flipped during the presidential election. Voters there gave Democrats a Senate majority. How have you seen sort of Georgia change since you grew up there? I know my home state of Florida has changed a lot (laughs) from my perspective as a queer person. (laughs) It's changed Um, through the course of this interview. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Talk to me about that. And how do you feel about this, you know, this newfound attention surrounding Georgia voters, especially Black voters and and Black folks in Georgia as well?
1: Yeah. You know, when I think about Georgia these days, it's so funny. It's almost like, you know, the ex that changes for the better after y'all break (laughs) up. And you're like, oh, really? Finally, Georgia has changed a lot. You know, when I was growing up, I felt so disconnected from my potential, I think, as like a queer person, an openly queer person, openly trans person. That was like kind of the propaganda, I think, that you you got and you still kind of get a lot of the times. Like growing up, m- most of the media that I watched, it was set somewhere else. So I think I internalized a lot of that in addition to feeling isolated from queer and trans community. So now I joked at the beginning of this response, but I am so proud to come from the South, to come from Georgia, to come from Augusta, because there is this unspoken story that people are like starting to unravel. That there has always been a radical, Black, brown, queer, trans, feminist presence there and that people have been fighting really, in my opinion, some of the hardest fights around shifting social progress in the South versus in other regions because it's such an uphill battle. So many of our organizing principles come from the South and and the work that happened there. You can't talk about a Martin Luther King Jr. or Kwame Ture Fannie Lou Hamer, or so many folks, or Rosa Parks, without talking about the South. And now we know you can't talk about, you know, Black trans history without talking about someone like Francis Thompson, who fled the Memphis riots in the mid 1800s. So we've always been there. It just took me a long time, and I think it takes a lot of us a long time to
0: realize that, right, and to see that glorious power that's always been there. Great. All right, Raquel, so I've got a couple more things I would like to ask you about. We are going to go over a few more of the QWERTY nominees or the QWERTY awards, which you can vote for online and we'll talk about that later. But before we do that, I would like to play a little game that we play with every guest and it is called Let Me Get You Canceled. It is a game where we ask our guests to defend a terrible opinion, a person or a hot take. First option is defending the weekend's halftime show. And the second is, have you seen the Britney Spears documentary that recently came out? I have, yes. Okay. (laughs) So in light of that, a lot of people are finding out what I always knew growing up, which is that Justin Timberlake is a villain. But Justin Timberlake is the villain of this week for his disrespect of Janet, which we reminded of at the Super Bowl, and for his disrespect of Britney, everything he got away with it. So option number two is sarcastically defend Justin Timberlake and give us five reasons why Justin Timberlake should not be the villain of the week. So your options are defend the weekend's halftime show or defend justin timberlake's honor
1: (laughs) i one of them is a cop out and i'm like am i gonna cop out or should i just go there (laughs) okay i'll oh lord (laughs) I'll defend Justin Timberlake because the cop-out is the weekend performance.
0: This is wild. Okay, we're doing it. So this week's Let Me Get You Canceled is Raquel Willis giving us five reasons why Justin Timberlake should not be the villain of the week. All right, Raquel, go for it.
1: So Justin Timberlake should not be the villain of the week because he is just one of a few villains in Britney's life. My argument is that the bigger villain is Jamie Spears. Mm -hmm. Y'all can't say that Justin Timberlake can't sing.
0: Oh, that one hurts, but it's true. Homie can
1: actually sing. I'm telling you that 2020 experience was real cute, (laughs) which I felt really bad because that was post him destroying Janet um, or being a part of Janet's career destruction. And Cry Me a River is a cute song. I mean, minus the video. If he never released the video, the if song he, is
0: he, cute. Right. If he hadn't released that video making it about Britney, I fully would have been singing my heart out middle school. Yes, I'm there with you. Yeah.
1: Okay. You also have to admit, even though it's misogynistic as hell, that was a stunt queen moment, honey. To put a look-alike in the video. I had it was forgotten like, it was Scarlett Johansson, too. It was? <laughs> Apparently, it was. Now, Scarlett, see, Scarlett been playing in our faces for years. <laughs> Been doing her dirt for years. <laughs> wow. I did not, I didn't realize that that was her. It was like the opposite of what Rihanna did with the We Found Love video where she to oh looked like Chris Brown. <laughs> I mean, maybe he inspired her.
0: Um, maybe that's a redeeming quality. There you go. I'll take that as point number four. He might have inspired Rihanna. <laughs> Damn.
1: I actually I really am so mad at Justin Timberlake because there's the Britney stuff. There's Janet.
0: We've both been canceled now after that defense of Justin Timberlake. (laughs) Thank you so much for playing along, Raquel. Oh, man. That's dredging up some traumatic memories about boy bands in my youth. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And now, before I let you go, we do have one more thing I would love to ask you about, which is the upcoming QWERTY Awards. We've got some categories and a reminder to our listeners that the QWERTY Award nominations are live right now. And you can all go vote for your favorite nominees at Queerty.com slash queerdies 2021. In our documentary category for the queerties we've got The Reagans, we've got Born to Be, Circus of Books, Mucho Mucho Amor, the documentary about Walter, Disclosure, Bully, Coward, Victim, we've got Visible out on TV, Welcome to Chechnya. Tiger King, and Howard.
1: You know, I gotta go with disclosure. There's something about how they weave that thing together, honey. Laverne as like the glue between these different eras of of visibility felt so right. Mm -hmm. They had so many trans people working on the production, a trans
0: director. It's just such a fascinating documentary because it does weave this history and and make these connections in a way that doesn't feel too complicated or too heavy. It felt like it was just touching the surface of something that was so uh, often ignored or not discussed. Absolutely.
1: They worked their ass off of that.
0: Oh, it's so impressive. All right. So you got it here. We're placing our bets on disclosure. That's our personal fave, but you may vote however you'd like. And we've got one more. We've got the Closet Door Bust Down. These are folks who have <laughs> come out at some point this year. So in the Closet Door Bust Down category, we've got Ben Aldridge, Nikki Dieger, Quinn, Pablo Alboran, DeBrat, Zaya Wade, Elliot Page, Kwando Do Woon, Nisi Nash, and Justice Smith. For me, I remember like Nisi Nash coming out with wedding photos was amazing. That was major for that was such a flex. I loved that. It was. So talk to me. How do you feel about this category?
1: I think that there are so many good ones on here. And and the thing that's beautiful about this category is that These people did it on their own terms. We're in a time now where it's like, hopefully less and less common for folks to be outed. And it feels so interesting to see such a mixture of more mature folks, younger folks coming out together. You know, that's the beauty of our community, right? Mm -hmm. It's like everybody comes on their own time, hopefully. And it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's a different journey for everybody. And I, I think that's also a fun thing about this category that we have folks representing different generations backgrounds, experiences, and it's a deeply personal journey. And I'm glad that these folks managed to, you know, set the terms on their own and feel good about it. I'm just so excited for this one. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I can choose in this category either. This is really difficult. So I'll (laughs) leave it up to the listeners here. Well, Raquel, we are sadly, I think at the end of this show now that we've dragged everybody left and right. So uh, before I let you go, Raquel, I would love to know where can people find you online on social media, find your work
1: You can find me at RaquelWillis.com, R-A-Q-U-E-L-W-I-L-L-I-S. My name is the same on Twitter, on IG. I try not to be on Facebook that much. Not out of protest of Zuckerberg, because if I was going to do that, I wouldn't be on IG either. I'm just not on there that much. But
0: yeah, you can check me out in those places. All right. Amazing. So RaquelWillis.com and Raquel Willis on all socials. Please, if you're listening, make sure to support the Queerty podcast as well. You can subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment. Leave us a glowing review. Tell us how much fun you had listening to Raquel today. And you can get your Queerty fix every day at Queerty.com or follow me, Gonzalez, using the handle GayBones, G-A-Y-B-O-N-E-Z on Twitter or Instagram. It's not a weird sex thing. It's an name from college. We'll explain it one day. Queerty has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q-Digital. Queerty is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shireen Lonnie-Yunes, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Brett Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D. Mons. Forever (laughs) Dog.